This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamecom slash donate. Thank you for listening. Our scripture that was previously read came from the gospel according to Luke. It was the 19th chapter, and the verses that were read were the 41st through to the 42nd. Reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible, here are the words as they've been recorded. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. A very peculiar passage of scripture, one would think. It seems to me that the church, for the most part, is largely silent regarding the killings in the Middle East. On the one hand, we hear a staunch defense of Israel by the evangelicals because it coincides with their understanding of biblical prophecy and their condemnation of Muslims. While, on the other hand, we hear the cry of Palestinian sympathizers condemning Israel for their disproportionate response to the acts of terrorism perpetrated by Hamas. And in the midst of all of this, the Protestant and Roman Catholic Church, for the most part, is stuck trying to play both sides under the guise of humanitarianism. There is no shortage of churches condemning all violence and calling for an end to war as a means of resolving human conflict. There is no shortage of churches specifically condemning the visible acts of terror being claimed by Hamas and the ongoing and increasing terror unfolding in Gaza. And some even go so far as to state how unacceptable it is to turn all of the people living in Gaza into hostages and casualties based on a need for vengeance against Hamas. It is understood that as the church, we can remain in solidarity with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a Palestinian Jew, and the Prince of Peace, and even weep for the suffering being inflicted upon the children of God in the Holy Land and all the earth. But our thoughts and fervent prayers that God's truth, justice, mercy, and shalom will overtake us all is appropriate. But it does little to alleviate the suffering of innocent people and bringing stability to a region that has long forgotten and turned its back on God. So it saddens me to say that our churches are as irrelevant as ever when it comes to matters of global conflict because we have spent and wasted too much time and money trying to build cathedrals of stone 
and shrines of idolatry. Instead of cultivating relationships outside of our four walls so that in a time when we should be the oracles of God, we are nothing more than sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. I don't know the answer, but I know who does. And so I want to do my best to try and provide a contextual and a biblical perspective to this crisis in the Middle East, which I aim to do in a message I've titled today, The Weeping Savior. Let us pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming as we have called. Now speak, and we will listen. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas is currently front and center of all news that is being transmitted throughout media in these United States today and around the world. And as a result of this conflict, we're also witnessing the emergence of hate crimes and tactics of intimidation being levied against Jews in the United States, accompanied by a meteoric rise of anti-Semitic rhetoric all over social media. From the White House to your house, everyone seems to have an opinion on the nature of the conflict. And everyone seems to want to talk of humanitarian sensitivities for fear of appearing to be too much in favor of Israel or too sympathetic towards Palestinians. Jews don't like it when you talk of humanitarian support for Palestinians, and pro-Palestinian supporters don't like it when you talk of Israel's right to defend itself. Furthermore, it can't be anti-Semitic to be against any one side of the conflict because they are both Semitic peoples. And it seems to me that the word anti-Semitism is being weaponized in the same way that the word racist is being weaponized. So the question becomes, whose side are you on? And is there even a side? And what does the church of Jesus Christ have to say? I wonder. This conflict, unlike the conflict in the Ukraine and Russia, however, seems to have struck a particularly sensitive nerve in the conscience of this nation. Why? I'm not so sure. But what I do know is that for some reason, it feels different from any other conflict. Yes, sir. To be clear, there has been unrest in this region between the Jewish state of Israel and her neighbors for years. But not since the atrocities of the Holocaust has there been so brazen an attack on Jews as was witnessed on October 7th, 2023. And to be further clear, the attack was an act of terrorism by an organization that admittedly had every intention of killing innocent people and doing exactly what they did. And it is my contention that this act of terroristic aggression was predicated on the hope that the Israeli government would respond in exactly the way that it is responding right now. Let me be clear. Hamas wanted Israel to do what Israel 
is doing right now. Now the why of all of this is not for me to say. And I think it is foolish and futile to try and analyze this conflict as if there is going to be a rationale which will make it all make sense. Brothers and sisters, war is war. The people are dying because man has not yet figured out that every act of violence that takes the lives of innocent people is being done in service to the God of this world that only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So I don't care if you believe this is biblical prophecy or not, but I do care that you not feed into any propaganda machine when you really have no clue what is going on and you really have no say. To be quite frank, I'm just a preacher. And knowing full well that I have no foreign affairs experience, I can only react to what I am observing, just like many of you. My opinion on whether Jews are to blame for this conflict or whether Hamas is justified in their zeal or if Palestinians are complicit in the chaos does not matter. And my words will always fall flat when I speak on this issue because none of my children and none of my family members live in the Gaza Strip nor in the West Bank nor is any of my loved ones involved in fighting the war. I have no say. And I don't have to pretend because I'm the church that I can come with my hands and make it all go away. So my only reason for even talking about this conflict, especially from this pulpit, is that I have a responsibility to you as my congregation to make sure that you are at least informed on some basic level what you are seeing. Because if I say nothing and all you have to depend on is what the media it wants to tell you or how social media wants to coerce you, then the vacuum of your ignorance will be filled by something so much worse, which would be nothing more than baseless conspiracy theories and fear-mongering apocalyptic nonsense so that the condition of your mind will be 10 times worse being filled with seven demons more deadlier than the one you perhaps now harbor. I think you have a right to at least know what I have to say as part of our assembly. So let me start with a very high level view of what you should know about this conflict. And then I'll bring it all together in the context of our scripture and then show you its relevance for you and me today. Is that all right? Yes. By the way, <laughs> this is all public information I'm about to tell you that you can always Google. And I want to credit the Joe Madison show on Sirius XM radio for a stellar expose given it in an interview with Mr. Malcolm Nance. So for you all, a brief lesson in history. Stay with me. It won't be painful yet. Last Wednesday, in our Bible study, we showed the area on the map that is at the heart of the current conflict, an area known as the Gaza Strip. But there's a historical context 
to all of this fighting, a conflict that goes way back to when the Ottoman Empire occupied the region for over 400 years before being taken over by the British. The British then later divided up that area in giving Israel their current location in 1948 while at the same time trying to give Palestinians a same or an equal amount of land in that region. This move, by the way, is what many Christians believe, especially evangelicals, to be the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. You listen to those folks on the Word Network and all of them, they talk a lot about 1948 and how all the Israelis came back to the region. They see it as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, perhaps. But when that happened, when that happened in 1948, this division was rejected by many of the nations in that region. And I'm talking about Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, which led to a war in 1948, which they ended up losing. Since then, indigenous Palestinians have been living as refugees in their own land. Facts. Now, when Israel was given that piece of land, they originally occupied the Gaza Strip area, but decided to move their settlements and uproot their own citizens in order to give Palestine, the Palestinian Authority control of the region. But that didn't work out so well because Israel still came under numerous attacks and suicide bombings. Now, in 2007, Hamas, a known terrorist group, was elected by the Palestinian people who chose to reject the Palestinian Authority in favor of Hamas. This election of Hamas, by the way, came with the help of the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who believed that Hamas and the Palestinians fighting each other was better than them fighting Israel. So he, he, he made a gamble supporting Hamas that they wouldn't bother him and it backfired. You see, his gamble backfired and that is why today he is currently experiencing a whole lot of vitriol from his own people. Is this making sense? Are you tracking with me? Good, right? So not to mention after Hamas was elected, they declared 100% that they would immediately be taking up armed opposition against Israel. Since then, Hamas has continued to attack Israel, sending in more suicide bombers, prompting Israel to build a wall. And when that didn't work, they started sending rockets into Israel. At the same time, Hamas was building tunnels underneath Palestine. And, and, and they were building these tunnels with concrete and infrastructure that they were getting from the United States and the United Nations and other allies. They were building these tunnels. And brothers and sisters, Israel kept sending in these targeted incursions to try to stop the bombings and all of that. And then a ceasefire was called back in 2021. When the ceasefire was called, from that moment until now, 2023, two years later, Hamas spent that time planning and preparing a 1,500-person terrorist attack machine that had only one mission, 
to go into Israel and kill as many people as they could find. No matter if they were Israelis or not, they could be Americans or Jamaicans, whatever they find, they were going to kill as many people as they can. And they were going to launch 10,000 rockets into Israel, which they exactly what they did on October 7th, 2023. Hamas planned the attack. And because they knew how Israel would respond, they retreated to those tunnels and left the innocent Palestinians to feel the full brunt and weight of Israel's attack. So what you're looking at today on television is innocent Palestinians who through no fault of their own are receiving the brunt of what Hamas did intentionally. So here's the deal. Israel is a nation state with Palestinians, Arabs, and Christians living there peaceably in Israel. Yes. The Palestinians in Gaza elected Hamas, not knowing that they would end up with no rights of their own in their own home. Hamas is a terrorist organization running the Gaza Strip while being headquartered in Qatar and Egypt. Hamas built tunnels, not shelters for the people, and are using Palestinians in Gaza as human shields. The Palestinians in Gaza did not attack Israel. Hamas did. And Israel has a right to defend itself, and Palestinians have a right to live in peace. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> I'm just telling you facts. Nothing to do with my opinion. Jews today, today, are petrified over the prospect that there is an appetite to wipe them off the map from the river to the sea. That's the language. And the rise in anti-Semitic rhetoric is not only fueling anger from Palestinian sympathizers, both Christian and Muslims, but white supremacists as well, who see this as an opportunity to spew their venom and carry out their domestic hate crimes. On the other hand, the Palestinian people are horrified at the slaughter of their innocent loved ones who have nothing to do with this conflict except that they are refugees in their own homeland caught between the hatred of Hamas and the preemptive fear of the Israelis. Such is the plight of both the Jewish people who have a right to defend themselves and the Palestinian people who have a right to enjoy peace and dignity in their homeland. I hope this is making sense to all of you. And by virtue of the nature of the conflict, here in church, the United States of America has no juice in terms of their ability to tell Israel how it should deal with Hamas. Which, by the way, every time the U.S. calls for ceasefire, Israel says no. Such that they've now switched the language and calling for a humanitarian pause, which Israel scoffs at as well. I'm just saying, the UN, the US and its allies all together have no juice in this conflict. And if they have no juice, what do you think the Pope, Franklin Graham, and John Hagee, and Donald Trump, and the US Congress, and the AME bishops, Richardson, Wicker, Byfield, and Brookings have? No juice. We are as irrelevant and useless as Saul's armor against David's Goliath. Family, again, 
I'm not giving you an opinion. I'm just telling you the facts of what is happening and a little bit of background which you can all Google for yourself in order to validate. So while there are people that are sympathetic to the Palestinians and that are protesting on college campuses, we see it on TV, and while others are pro-Israel, wanting the US to support Israel unconditionally, and still there are others who are not sure what to believe, everyone wants peace. We're just not sure what that peace would look like or even how to achieve it. Will peace come with a two-state solution, which Biden is calling for, and Israel says, no? Who knows? Will peace come with the complete annihilation of Hamas, similar to ISIS? Who knows? Will peace come with another UN resolution that includes the Arab nations? Who knows? Or will peace come with World War III? Who knows? But guess who knows? <laughs> guess who knows? Let's now turn to Luke, the 19th chapter, and the 41st to the 42nd verses. That was a long introduction. When he, meaning Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. What does Jesus mean by this? Historically, 40 years after Jesus made that exact statement, the city of Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. 40 years after Jesus said those words. And many scholars believe that this destruction is what Jesus saw and therefore wept over it. But I don't believe that. Church, listen to me. Jesus is the savior of the world. He knew that he came to die and to save his people from their sins. He called the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the bishops a brood of vipers and hypocrites. He was disgusted by their apathy and their attitude towards God. So it makes no sense to me that Jesus would be weeping because Jerusalem was going to be under Roman rule in just 40 years. If that would make Jesus weep, then I have to wonder if he also wept when a whole generation was wiped out during the Exodus. Right, Kimberly? Makes no sense to me that that's a good reason for Jesus to weep. So, so we have to look carefully at what Jesus says. And here's what he says. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. If you had known the things which make for peace, what things? Jerusalem was not at war, nor were they ever at war historically with Rome or anyone else. Besides today, I don't know of a time when Israel was ever in a full-blown war which would necessitate the things which make for peace. Are you with me? These people were just church people. I don't, it's not until they have a real army 
would Jesus be saying the things which make for peace? Because you only need peace when you're at war. I'm just saying. So what time period is Jesus really referring to? Was it now? Today? Is it a future time to come? I'm not sure. But he didn't stop there. He went on further to say, hear it, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What? Enemies forming a barricade and surrounding Israel on every side in a war? How could this be talking about Rome in AD 70? Israel did not have a military at the time. The Romans came, so Rome did not have to form any barricades. And while they leveled the temple, I don't know that Rome also leveled children when they did that. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the conflict we see today when Israel has a formidable army and an incursion into Gaza that is frankly upsetting right now, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, the nations that surround Israel on every side, a leveling might be in the works. Again, I don't know, nor am I speaking prophetically, but what I do believe is that what I am thinking is more plausible than what these other theologians think about what Jesus said. Stuff gotta make sense to me. So I believe Jesus was not looking at AD 40, nor even 1948. I believe Jesus was looking at something beyond October 7th, 2023. And what he saw made him weep. Jesus wept for Jerusalem because I believe he saw what Hamas would start. But to really understand why Jesus would be weeping over Jerusalem, we need to look at the only other time in scripture where Jesus wept. Mm -hmm. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. The precursor to this, the shortest verse in the Bible, is that Lazarus had died. But Jesus, who could have made it to Lazarus's side, waited four days, by which time they had already buried him in the tomb. So here is the context. John 11, the 32nd, beginning at the 32nd verse. Stay with me, church, because I want to understand the mind of Christ, and I want you all to get it. Here is what it says. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus could have come to Lazarus' aid in time, but he didn't. 
Jesus could have consoled Mary, but he didn't. Jesus could have consoled all those weeping Jews, but he didn't. Jesus could have healed Lazarus before his death, but he didn't. But he wept when they showed him where Lazarus was laid. In other words, the place where he was laid proved the certainty of his death. Jesus wept because Lazarus' death was a necessary event to show forth God's glory. And because Jesus would never want anyone to have to do what he himself came to do, he wept. Jesus wept because he knows that our suffering is inevitable, even though it is redeemable. I'm not sure if this makes sense to any of you, brothers and sisters. So let me try to explain it with an illustration. I want you to imagine a scene with me. There is a young doctor, and he and his wife has three small children. This doctor volunteers to take a dangerous six-month mission assignment to a place where there is an epidemic of a very rare incurable disease and a good deal of hostility from the people who live in that region towards any outsiders. The doctor takes the assignment because nobody else with his particular training was willing to go. The months pass slowly. The kids really miss their dad. Talking about fathers, they really miss their dad. The wife does a great job of trying to hold the family together, trying to be both mom and dad for their three children. Then the day of his return approaches, and the whole family is full of excitement. Mom has butterflies in her tummy, and the kids race around the house shouting, Daddy's coming home! Daddy's coming home! Are you seeing the picture? Daddy's coming home! Daddy's coming home! At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a taxi cab pulls into the driveway. The kids charge out to the front door, followed by mom with their heart beating so hard she can even feel the excitement of her children. The back door of the cab opens up and out steps dad, a little bit thinner because he's been in the jungles and a little more bearded to conceal his hollow cheeks. But with a big smile across his weary face, he kneels down on the grass and he's smothered by six clinging arms around him, climbing all over him. Hooray for daddy! Hooray! Daddy's home! Each one gets their special hug and the mom just waits her turn. Finally, he pulls himself loose. He and his wife embrace. Welcome home, she says. And he says, ah, it's good to be back home. Now I want you to imagine looking into the eyes of this father, this young doctor, because there's a message there. Mm -hmm. And if you can see it, just imagine looking into the eyes of this young doctor. You will know something of what Jesus felt as he looked at the place where Lazarus was laid, or as he looked over Jerusalem. Look into his eyes. What you can... <laughs> or see in this doctor's eyes is something that he knows that his family doesn't know. He caught the disease. And he had only one week to live. Can you see his eyes? As Jesus looked over 
Jerusalem. As he looked at Lazarus' tomb, he thinks about the inevitability of what is yet to happen. And Jesus wept. My brothers and my sisters, when Jesus saw the city, he wept over it and he said these words. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now have been hidden from your eyes. The things which will make for peace is not a two-state solution in the Middle East. The things which will make for peace is not the complete annihilation of Hamas. The things which will make for peace is not another UN resolution that includes the Arab states. And the things which will make for peace is not World War III. The things which will make for peace is the opening of our blinded eyes to the fact that we are all in a fallen condition. And no matter how hard we try, we have absolutely no answer to our violent nature to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The things which make for peace is a recognition that Jesus and him alone is the way, the truth, and the life. The things which will make for peace is a visitation from the great physician who would dare enter into the diseased jungle of our wicked soul and save us at a great cost to himself, which was the cross. The things which will make for peace is the weeping Savior. The weeping Savior weeps because your suffering and mine and the suffering of all people all over the world is as inevitable as Lazarus's death. And while Jesus has the power and the ability to alleviate that suffering through his compassionate nature, it is necessary that all things be fulfilled before his arrival. Such is the burden of our Lord, and that's why he weeps. It's one thing when you see suffering. It's an entirely different thing when you know you have the ability to alleviate that suffering, but you can't yeah. because of their unbelief and the blindness of their eyes. So while Israel is arrogant and the Palestinians are vulnerable, and the United States and its allies are ignorant. And the United Nations is impotent. And the Arab world is demonized. And Hamas is finished. The church will pray that God will do what only he can do. Which is to open the eyes for the things which make for peace. I don't know what it is. But he does. And if he opens the right eyes and enough eyes, then peace might just be found. Peace, not as the world gives, but the peace that Jesus Christ gives. And though it tarries, we wait for it. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what's our responsibility? What should we do in the meantime? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. In the meantime, as much as it depends on us as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to stop with the platitudes and the meaningless words. And if you know a Jew or you know a Palestinian or anyone that is impacted 
by this conflict, that is your one opportunity to simply ask, how are you doing? And in so doing, embody Jesus, the weeping Savior, and weep with them in their time, their time of sorrow. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved. I will cast all my cares upon you. I'll lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you.